the Rose Bowl, for instance, um, they'd saved 500 seats in their stadium for, for a band. And on a typical road game, we get 550. So we had to figure something out. And that something was, you know, leave some tubas out. If you go back and watch that game, you'll see this really strange configuration in the stands. And, and that's a result of the, you know, the, the sort of lack of seating that we had there. What's up, Georgia Bulldogs fans? My name is Scott Duvall, and you are listening to episode 230 of the Waiting Since Last Saturday podcast. This is one of our very special Spotlight Series episodes. For the podcast, we reserve the Spotlight Series for a special group of people that have a unique perspective or insight into Georgia Bulldogs athletics. A large concentration in past Spotlight Series have consisted of sports media members or writers who attended the University of Georgia. But today like I said, is a very special episode. My co-host, Tony Waller, had a fantastic conversation with Dr. Brett Baucom. Dr. Baucom is the Assistant Director of Bands and Associate Director of Athletic Bands at the University of Georgia, which means he's the head director of the Redcoat Marching Band. He also directs the basketball and volleyball pep bands, conducts various concert bands, and teaches a variety of courses in music, including instrumentation and arranging and marching band techniques. If there's ever been an episode that you're going to want to share with fellow Georgia fans on social media, this is definitely one of them. Tony and Dr. Balkum discuss the process of how the Redcoats get ready for game day and a couple of very cool game day traditions that you all know and love. Traditions that Dr. Balkum helped start. So, let's just jump on into it. We're sure you're going to enjoy this one. Here's Tony to get it all started. Today I'm joined by Dr. Brett Balkum, Director of Athletic Bands at the University of Georgia, Brett, welcome to uh, Waiting Last Saturday. Waiting since last Thank Saturday. Thank you very much. Forget the right. podcast. <laughs> no, it's, well, I knew it because I listened, so uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be with you. Oh, well, that, that actually makes me a little nervous about some of the stuff we say. Do we normally get it right if we talk about the bread coats? I think so. Yeah. I, I can't think of anything that you've, you've missed on. Um, I, I probably would have brought it up by now. So uh, no, I think you guys, uh, you guys got to culturally enlightened people that you are, you know. The funny thing is, is I'm trying to think, we have been Twitter, I guess, friends is the right way of putting it, for a while. And I, I want to say the first time I ever actually shook your hand would have been a Kentucky game a few years ago, unless I've missed misplaced that. But um, I've, I've long had a, a policy. If I'm going to an away game and it's like Auburn or you know someplace with a massive, massive stadium, I'm, I'm trying to sneak over by the, the band. And the reason for that is that I want to be loud in a way where I don't have to, I don't know, explain myself to Georgia fans that don't want to be loud that way. And also, right. um, I don't want issues with um, visiting fans who happen to have bought tickets in the Georgia section. Uh, or if I have tickets in the, the, the visitor section, I just, I don't know. It's just me. I, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of having the confrontation, but I'm also not going to be a jackass about it. It's just more fun to me to sit by the band. Sure. It's um, maybe, maybe you get a little bit less of the uh, ambiance of the, uh, of the enemy and a little bit more of uh, I'll call it ambiance. It's, it's probably more like, you know, spit and volume, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I think I understand, but it was Kentucky. You're right. Um, it was a Kentucky, Kentucky game away. Um, I, I believe you had a, a, a run in with the law that weekend, if I'm not mistaken. Um, <laughs> it's all, it's all together possible. Uh, right. Well, no, this, that was the jaywalking weekend. Um, um, oh. that's, that's what, that, so I'll bring that up every now and then. I don't know if you, if you remember that that was, that, that was that weekend or not. 
Well, it's it's funny because we had a separate jaywalking incident at the Belk Bowl, uh, whenever that was. The jaywalking incident we had in Kentucky literally was um, we were just going to cross Cooper Drive there. If if you ever been to Commonwealth, I'm sorry, Kroger Field uh, to the grocery sack. I think it's Copper Drive or Copper Avenue or Cooper Drive. I'm sorry, Cooper Drive. It was just the main road that kind of separates that area of campus from athletic fields and or from Commonwealth Stadium. And um, there was literally no traffic, and we were just going to walk across and kind of get over to the stadium side. And a constable appeared out of nowhere, literally, and was yelling at us about jaywalking. There were some among us, and I, it, I, I can honestly say it was not me. There were some among us who had had um, had gone about a drink past plenty. And uh, <laughs> did, did, it wanted to it wanted to, to to provide some uh, debate material with the constable. And we were able to corral that person. Uh, it, it's not the Belk Bowl where where we uh, we actually encountered the police, and the police uh, encouraged us with a ticket to not jaywalk. Um, <laughs> so, but you know what? It's fine. Bryce Ramsey came in, and uh, we lit uh, we lit Grantham up. Uh, so all's well that ends well. Indeed, um, <laughs> it was only like forty dollars. So. Um, so you know, talking about the 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 uh, UGA band and the red coats, um, I learned something interesting. A lot of people know this. the The term is called the derbies, right? The 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 band, the I, I call it a pep band, but the small band that travels called the derbies, right? Yeah. And why do they call that? Is that a typical band thing, or I'm just I'm ignorant about these things. Well, um, honestly, so are we. Um, there are a few theories about why the, the, they're called the derbies. Um, it's only a UGA thing. Um, I've seen two theories, both of which seem plausible. Um, one is that um, at the time, many people know that the band uh, at large was known as the Dixie Redcoat Band, and the abbreviation for that was DRB. And so the term derbies may have just grown out of DRB, um, the other is that um, for one reason or another, the uh, the group wore derby hats. Um, and so it may be that that they that the hats came first, or it could be that uh, the hats just came along because of the name that developed from uh, the abbreviation for the band. I'm not really sure. It's a really unusual thing. I mean, there are groups that have sort of nicknames for their, their pet band. Um, Missouri is a particularly good one. Um, their basketball band is referred to as... Uh, well, the big band is called the Marching Mizzou, and then their, their uh, pet band is called Mini Mizzou, which I think is kind of cool. And and we've messed around with with some other ideas for basketball and other pet bands, but we've never really uh, used anything other than pet band or derbies. So that's it. And for the Georgia fans that don't have a good idea, how many kids travel with the, the derbies? Um, it varies. So um, for uh, Tennessee, South Carolina – um, and most likely for Alabama uh, next year, assuming we actually play that game um, when and where we're planning to play it, we'll take 100 people. It's basically two busloads. For the, some of the smaller games, I say they're smaller only in terms of you know the size of the band. For Vanderbilt, Kentucky, um, uh, usually anything west of the um, Alabama-Mississippi line, we take 45. And then on the rare occasion when we fly, which is almost always uh, Missouri, uh, Arkansas, something like that, will end up taking about thirty. Texas A and M, if we ever ever play them, they're still in the conference. If it, if it, if it ever happens, uh, I'm told they're in the SEC, but um, you'll have to prove it. Oh, I've seen their jerseys. It's on the jersey, so um, okay, good. So, and, and, so if I'm hearing you right, 
uh, it's safe to assume that the full Redcoat Band will not travel to Tuscaloosa then. That's uh, what we're being told at this point to expect funding-wise, and I'm not completely surprised by that. Um, we don't get, I mean, the, we don't get many tickets, so. Right. Well, and that's, you know, I, I would go, I would take the band every football game if I could. And I suspect that there's a pretty substantial, you know, portion of people in athletics who, if it made sense, would also send the band, send the whole band everywhere. But we are expensive. Um, I mean, you got to feed them. Um, you got to get them there. And then not only that, but that's you're you're giving us a ticket. Well, one and a half tickets per person, basically, that you can't sell to somebody else, and you can't get the donation for it. So we we cost twice as much as any other fan, at least. I don't always like the fact that we don't go, but I also get it. I mean, it's 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 an expensive uh, venture, right? So besides Florida, what uh, I assume the band's going to be at, at? Let's let's work on the assumption everything goes normally. Uh, the band will be at Mercedes-Benz for the kickoff game against Virginia. Correct. In Florida. Right. In these years, in, in even-numbered years, and this all changed when Auburn flipped uh, to, the, to the other side, um, uh, in even-numbered years now, the only guaranteed full band trip we'll take is, is Florida. And then in the other year, it's Auburn and Georgia Tech and Florida. Um, so, the, okay. so now we have heavy years and light years. Okay, that makes sense. You know, I always forget that the full band goes to Tech just because it's, for the past few years, it's nearly been a home game for Georgia. So, or right. uh, home game light, I should say. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's it, it, it almost feels wrong to call it a road game for multiple reasons, not the least of which is that we, you know, we tend to take the place over. Um, but, of course, you know, it's, you know, it's an hour's drive we basically meet most of the students over there anyway, cause it's at the end of Thanksgiving break. So we need, we don't even, you know, we maybe have two bus loads on campus. Everybody else we meet in Norcross and rehearse real quick and then drive into the ball game. Yeah. Y'all rehearse at Greater Atlanta Christian. Do I remember that right? We do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the only reason I knew that is I talked with, uh, who did I talk? To? I don't remember who I talked with. I was trying to make sure I had the right section for the, uh, for the red coats. Cause we ended up, sitting in that tech student section immediately to the, I guess, on the end zone side of the red coats this year, uh, cause our tickets were, I mean, they were, they were fine. I mean, they were, they're, you know, they're cute little stadium. It's called the world's coldest uh, warm up or something like that. Uh, Oof. Yeah. yeah. There have been some cold ones over the years that we've, we've been rehearsing that morning at, uh, at GAC since about 2003, 2004, somewhere in there. It's just real convenient. I mean, it's right off of I-85. They've got great facilities. Um, I, I know a lot of people there because I, um, I, I grew up um, at that church next door, um, at least uh, for the last couple of years of high school anyway. So um, it's just it's an easy place to get things done. There's no appetite for you know everybody coming back to Athens uh, two days after Thanksgiving when they're all right there anyway. So Yeah, and then to turn around and go right back to Atlanta. That makes sense. I assume the numbers for the red coats are generally uh, available, but how, how big are the red coats and how big are they vis-a-vis some of the other major college football bands? Um, right now the band is depending on the day, because it certainly fluctuates over the course of a season um, about 435 students. And then you've got a staff of about 30, not all of whom are there on, uh, on, on every single uh, at every single event. Um, and I kind of expect that number to go down just a little bit. It's a little bulky for my taste. We get everybody on buses. There's literally not 
an empty bus seat. And that is just, it's a lot of togetherness, but it would help us in a number of ways to make it just a little bit smaller. Um, We'd be cleaner. um, We wouldn't be quite so cramped. We'd be a little less expensive. You know, I get worried about some of these events like the Rose Bowl, for instance. Um, They'd saved 500 seats in their stadium for, for a band. And on a typical road game, we get 550. So we had to figure something out. And that something was you know, leave some tubas out. If you go back and watch that game, you'll see this really strange configuration in the stands. And and that's a result of the, you know, the, the sort of lack of seating that we had there. But it's 430 to 440, depending on the year. And um, in the conference, um, I don't know of anybody bigger. It's possible that Alabama has 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 been above that for a time or two. Um, but, but no one, you know, doesn't... I can't think of anybody who's larger, at least in the SEC. It's Florida State maybe a little bit bigger. Um, Texas from time to time maybe a little bit bigger. Um, yeah, actually, the, the group that I know that's bigger is a high school band. There's a there's a band in, in Texas called uh, Allen High School, and they march 700 people. Wow. It's ridiculous. Yeah. That, how? How? I don't understand how you do that. Well, so their current director is a, is a former uh, band director at Baylor. He went backwards, um, and that's one of those kind of gigs. It's a rare one, but uh, uh, yeah, I don't even, I don't know how you move them around on the field. If you ever you, know, you ever go look them up, it's it, it's quite a feat just to just to have some place to go. They marched in the Rose Bowl parade a few years or Rose Bowl the Rose Parade a few years back, and uh, I can't imagine trying to hold that thing together. Just it has to be an absolute nightmare. Yeah, I got lucky for the Rose Bowl. Our tickets, uh, the tickets at the UGA were literally um, where I like to sit. Uh, almost hey. the same ones I had for Notre Dame, which is across the aisle from the band. I was about five seats yep. over from whoever's there on the, I guess if you're looking at them as director on the right side, uh, kind of under the scoreboard. And um, I, I, I have to be honest, I, while the band was an important part of the experience for me, I didn't notice how many tubes were there. Uh, it's always fascinating to me just because I think the band is such an important part of it. The band can set the tone for an away game. Uh, and which is one of the reasons I like to be close to the band if I can. And also one of the reasons why I hate a place like Auburn where, you know, you have the band and 700 fans on the lower deck. And then, you know, the rest of us are stuck, you know, ringing uh, just below the clouds. Um, but that's also intentional on the part of, um, of, of SEC away stadiums um so what you know as far as places to go what's your what's your favorite away stadium to go to oh that's a great question um so my brother went to auburn um Ooh, and I'm yeah so sorry claim him as my brother i know um thanksgiving is very interesting in our house um but I, I enjoy going to Auburn. It's always a, a good experience, and there's a neat tradition there. Uh, you know, obviously the the Deep South's oldest uh, rivalry, and there's a cool camaraderie also. I think with with the Auburn people, at least at times, um, until until you know toe meets leather. Um, that's a that's a good one. Um, I, I enjoy going to LSU. Um, it's terrifying. But, but, you know, and I've, I've been, I don't know, three times probably. Um, I was there at that, at that O two game or was it O three? It's O three over there, wasn't it? Um, and when that, when the announcer came on in the fourth quarter and said, now it's, it's officially nighttime at Tiger stadium and that place just absolutely lit up. 
Um, it's kind of like going to a, a Kentucky basketball game, you know, like, you know, you're going to be overpowered by the other fans um, and you learn to enjoy it because it's, it, it's an amazing experience. It's really loud. It's really intense. And yes, you're on the, the quote wrong team at that point, but it's still fun. And it's, you know, the, the sort of us against them mentality is neat. Um, one of the things I like to do with the band and I have to be careful not to take us too seriously um, cause I will do that. Um, but I do kind of think about, you know, when we go, go into an opposing stadium, um, I want to take over. I mean, I, I kind of want to make it our house for a little while. Um, and so that's one of the reasons, for instance, you know, was wrote the Rose bowl or the sec championship the same year where we'll play that, that stupid third down thing all game long. And it's because we know that when we do it, our fans will yell and get into the thing. And, and, you know, we're sitting there getting Twitter hate the entire night and we too are sick of playing it, but you know, we, we try playing something else and people don't scream. So we keep going back to the, the thing that works, run the ball, Bobo. I mean, you know, you, <laughs> you, you do the thing that you know you can get done. So I just think it's cool to, to try to go in and, and take over somebody else's house. We certainly did that at, at Vanderbilt this year with the Derbies. Um, our fans travel so much better than they did 20 years ago. I mean, yeah, I agree with that hundred percent. It's really cool to, uh, to be a part of something like that. And I think the fact that they do travel now makes, makes our travel a, a lot more compelling. As an aside, it's always interesting to me how much people hate, um, it's called Desiree or however you pronounce it. Yeah. Desiree. Yeah, it's always, it's always amazing to me how much fans hate that. And then I'll get to the end of the season. Like, Oh God, it's so hard hearing the song. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I get it. I mean, it's, it's like what we do on third down. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask the question, what does it take to become a red coat? My daughter is a huge red coat fan. Uh, has, is like her sole aspiration to go to Georgia has nothing to do with education is to be a red coat. Well, um, it depends on um, what you do, what your what your sort of function in band is. Um, for the the vast majority of members who are musicians, um, they've been playing their instrument most likely since fifth, sixth, seventh grade, somewhere in there. And the students who are going to make the band in most sections are students who practice every day, usually even through the summer, um, and they've been doing that for five, six, or seven years. Um, I'd say probably a third of the band, that's a guess, has been in the Georgia All-State Band at some point. So they uh, audition for things like that, get some uh, solid musical experiences, play around better musicians than them at times. And then usually they've also marched in their high school band, but we are seeing a lot of students these days who who go to schools where there, there wasn't a marching band. Several in Atlanta, um, will, they'll show up and say, but yeah, I've never marched before. Is that a bad thing? And it's totally fine with us. I mean, we're going to change what you do from a marching standpoint anyway. So uh, better not to have to fight uh, somebody else's uh, technique. Um, so in their senior year of high school in the spring, they will audition for us. Usually they come to campus and audition on a Saturday. Uh, this year they're doing it online. And we had already started dabbling in the, uh, the, the online audition thing anyway. So this is just sort of forcing our hand with that. So we'll listen to the audition. And then usually in early May, early May, we let them know uh, if they're in the band or not. And then uh, we get them in about a week before school starts. Um, and the drums and the auxiliaries, which is sort of an old fashioned name for the visual ensembles, the Georgettes, the Majorettes, Flagline, Future Twirler. They audition also in the springtime. 
but their audition, um, if this applies to drums also, the face to face component of that is a lot more important. So this year we're going to kind of do a first round on video. And then once we can see them face to face, uh, we'll actually do that. Those, those are spots where we have, we need to know how fast they learn uh, because we change things so often, or we put things in at the last minute and we just need to know that they can adapt and can learn quickly. So we can't tell that from a tape. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, my daughter and I came over and watched the Redcoats practice, uh, and y'all were installing something different uh, for the show that you rolled out for the first time, celebrating uh, Women in Song, if I recall. It was part of the show uh, that you incorporated, and you're just like literally, you're just like, hey, we're, we're literally installing this this week. It was fascinating to me to watch those kind of like early baby steps and how well it came together on the show on Saturday. You know, that's, I was almost embarrassed for you to see that that day, but for two reasons. One, it was early in the process. Uh, two, it was cold. Um, it was. And there are not many things worse than, than playing a wind instrument when it's cold. Um, it, they're always, they're going to be flat. So you can't, you know, I mean, everybody might be in tune with each other, but with our pit instruments, our front ensemble instruments, the keyboards on the sideline, et cetera, they don't change pitch like the wind instruments do. So we're a quarter step flat versus those things. And it's just a terrible sound, quite frankly. Um, and so th- th- I was a little worried about that, but, uh, but yeah, it is, I mean, it's gross at the beginning. It's, it's really hard, you know, you, you're doing multiple things at, at one time and, and, you know, sometimes just playing the music by itself can be tough. Then you add some movement in there and, and then it's harder Then space everybody out. And that's really, I think the hardest thing about marching band in general is how far apart you are. Um, it, it, it takes a pretty long time to make things uh, actually sound halfway decent and they sound halfway decent from far away, uh, which is what they're designed to do. But even when they're done, you don't want to hear it up close because it's, that's not how it was meant to be, you know, how, how it was meant to be consumed. Um, so yeah, it's, it is definitely a, an interesting process and one that is often uh, not pretty the, the sausage making is, is just as disgusting as the real thing. Yeah, and that that was actually the part about it that fascinated my daughter the most was I mean because they they essentially marched the entire the uh, same one show all season, um, and she was at Oconee County High School, and uh, Mark Provost is a fantastic band director, uh, and does a great job, and his bands uh, all always look really tight, and they're they're uh, obviously they improve through the year, but they don't I mean they add a few things, but usually what they add are the are the show parts in the front that you know the the, the marching. The, all the stops, all the set. I don't know what they're called. I'm, I'm basically parroting the words I heard my daughter say. Um, but they all remain the same. You know, I can find her at the same spot on the field at every game. Um, right. So it, it, I have to assume that the process of not just establishing shows, but figuring out when shows are going to come in and how you prep the shows, that's a fairly arduous process, right? Yeah, and it's a little different than in high school too. Like you said, um, and typically in high school, you'll have one, one show that you work on starting in August, sometimes July these days, and you basically play the same show through, through November. And so the supposed joy in that is, is watching it develop, um, well, watching it get better. And often you'll program something almost too hard for the purpose of, of giving them something to do, you know, for a period of time. You also get some credit at competitions in high school for, uh, for the difficulty of the, of, of the program. Um, so there's, there's more than one reason why they, they do that. So obviously we're at a place where the same 
several thousand season ticket holders are at every single game um, or the same set of students are at every single game. We can't, we can't do the same show over and over again. I feel like we're pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable as it is by repeating a show one time in one direction um, in the opposite direction. Um, but yeah, we'll start. Uh, well, we're, we're starting now basically on next fall. And I really feel like we should have started in January and that was what I intended to do. Um, but we're also one band director short right now and for the foreseeable future. So uh, we're trying to figure out how to operate uh, a little bit more efficiently than we have in the past. Um, so part of the way that, that I, I want to do things is um, to, to ha- make sure we've got a compelling reason for, for anything we play, especially as it relates to our audience. Um, I think bands in general, and certainly the Redcoats at times have been guilty of this, um, we, we tend to get stuck in our bubble. Um, so if I say, you know, I talk about a piece of band music, like Lincolnshire Posey, I say that to somebody in the band world, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Nobody else knows what I'm talking about. Um, so, you know, we decide to go play Malaguena on the field. Well, I'm not sure that anybody in San Francisco cares that we're playing Malaguena. It just does. It's not a, not a thing to them. They don't recognize it. They don't know the tune. So we're trying to make sure that we're, we're relevant um, and that we're doing something that people will enjoy. Uh, and that was, I think, last year's uh, sing-along show that we we did at Notre Dame, or well, for the Notre Dame game, was a, was a good example of that. Um, you know, people knew the tune, and we wrote it. That was a really strange thing. We had to we wrote the tunes um, in the key that they were originally sung in because we wanted people to sing along. But band keys are pretty different from you know rock and roll keys. So you know, a, a rock song might be written in G major. We don't, we don't play in G major. That's, we sound terrible in G major. You know, we play in B flat and A flat, et cetera. So we had to, to learn to do things in a new way for that show also. But um, I'm getting off track here. Generally, we'll start planning sometime in the mid-spring, and uh, we'll get together with our arranger. We'll listen to the students and try to put some ideas together about how we can uh, play music in an interesting way. Uh, for the fans and then uh, sort of develop that over the course of the summer. So it takes us uh, usually from April until October to write all that music. Um, Sometimes we're writing deep into November, uh, depending on how far behind we've gotten earlier in the season. So, uh, but the, but the wind book is almost always finished by the, by the, I'd say the beginning of October and then the percussion and uh, auxiliary work continues into early November. So you get the wind score and then you kind of build everything uh, based off of that. And th- so those will be the shows that you'll play at those, those November games into the postseason. Yeah. And, and since, you know, you don't ever want to assume that you're going to, you're going to end up going very far into the postseason, but we learned something in the Rose bowl year. Uh, that was when we, our third show that season was, I say it's a third show. It's really more of a fourth show. Um, it was uh, Almond brothers. And, Um, We didn't know when we started playing this thing basically right before Florida that we would be playing it into the second week of January. Um, And now that we know that that's a possibility, we're we're backing that third show up a little bit. We're trying to add to it. So that uh, the women of pop show you're talking about was that show this year. Um, We did a portion of the show called women of red coats, which basically was a nod to the, to the women in red coats and, and uh, had a moment there where they were the only ones playing and kind of recognized them for a minute. But we added things to that show over the course of November and December just to try to keep it fresh and interesting because um, it's a long time to play the same thing in this band anyway. 
um, and, and not get completely bored by it. Um, that's a, that's a pretty big factor. So just shifting gears real fast, can you briefly walk us through what the game day routine is? Um, let's, let's work on an assumption of a three thirty game. I realize that timing on that will be backed up or moved forward depending on kickoff. Right. Yeah. We start, um, in the, in the recent past, we've been starting six and a half hours before kickoff, uh, with a rehearsal, um, at our, and our current field is, um, at the very, very back of the intramural fields, uh, right by the, the dog park and the forest, et cetera. Um, so we start there six and a half to seven hours before kickoff, um, just to kind of run through things that we've, we've done that week. Um, it's pretty rare that we have a regular rehearsal where we have everybody in the band at rehearsal. It's, um, I mean, UGA is a big place. It's a broad place too. So, um, you know, you got students who, uh, um, maybe they're taking accounting tests on Tuesday night or Thursday night, somebody's got a concert, or, um, if we have basketball, we'll miss, um, about half of a rehearsal or more for that too. So you don't really have everybody together until Saturday morning. So that's kind of a chance to make sure that you know what you're doing and that everybody's, uh, uh, everybody out there knows what they're doing too. Um, and there are certainly occasions where you get to Saturday morning and, and somebody doesn't show up, they sick or something like that. So somebody else has to learn that spot real quick. That's, that's the time when you, you're able to get that done. Uh, we'll, we'll do about an hour and a half and then we bus over to the stadium and we um, we bust to East Campus Road, uh, down East Campus Road, and walk in the uh, the loading dock, and literally walk the band right down the south track over to, to Tate Center. Um, and then the drums and sousaphones begin their shows. Um, all this stuff started as warm up ages and ages ago when the band was in Old Stegman Hall, um, and it's kind of morphed into this uh, pregame activity that starts with the drum and sousaphone shows and culminates in the dog walk. Um, and that's what happens. So, um, last year we started putting the band in Tate in a room upstairs. Um, and that was thanks to the generous staff at the Tate center that that was able to happen. Um, so they basically are, are up there eating, get everybody, uh, warmed up and do the dog walk, take them back up there for a few more minutes. And then we'll march into the stadium with about 70 minutes remaining on the clock. Um, that's, we, that's for one reason only because we need to play Krypton and the, the last unit comes out of the locker room with 43 minutes on the clock. So we'll play that, then immediately head down for pregame and, uh, we're off to the races at that point. Pregame usually kicks, uh, steps off with about 15 minutes on the pregame clock. That's uh, it, it was fascinating to me that people just think the band just shows up without actually thinking about all of the logistics of getting nearly 500 people in essentially two different places or three, if you're counting, counting practice, you know, because the dog walk is, uh, and I, you probably can talk a little bit about how the dog walk came about, but the, you know, the dog walk is an important part of the game day experience for a lot of fans and the red coat's an integral part of that. Yeah. The dog walk came up in uh, coach Rick's after coach Rick's first year. Um, he had assembled a spirit committee, which was, uh, the then cheerleading coach, um, the late Reverend Claude McBride, um, former strength and conditioning coach, Dave Van Hallinger and yours truly. Um, and so we basically got together and tried to come up with some things that we could do to, to, to get spirit ramped up. And the dog walk was really the centerpiece of all that. Um, and the, the thinking was, well, the band's already out there, you know, they'd been playing in that parking lot for, 
uh, decades. I mean, I've got old pictures of myself in my red coat uniform in the early nineties, um, warming up in that, you know, the exact same place where we still play a lot of those things, but there was no dog walk at the time. Um, in fact, the derbies would go welcome the team to the, to, uh, um, to the stadium at Lumpkin street and nobody would show up. It just wasn't a thing. Um, of course, you know, a five and six or six and five record will do that. So, the dog walk itself is um, is a logistical challenge because of how spread out the band is. Um, you basically take uh, one end of the band and you stick them at the, uh, the the parking gates, and the other end of the band is all the way inside the uh, uh, the entrance gate, which is which is now that be gate ten. And so you get that many musicians spread apart by that far, and trying to get them to play together is hilarious. So yeah, it's it is it's quite a challenge, um, but but it it seems to work out. We really we used to practice it, and we need to do that again. I mean, we honestly we we just sort of show up and do it, and uh, it might very well sound like we just show up and. But I don't know. Um, I, I never hear that. I never hear it anyway. I'm always at Lumpkin waiting on the team, and I hear the very very tail end of the dog walk. But I haven't heard the dog walk, and well, I haven't heard what the band plays at the dog walk in in ten years. I was reading over your bio, and one of the things that I found the most fascinating is you conceived of the idea of the the Munson um, and arranged the Larry Munson Battle Hymn. Uh, that you know, it, it, I remember it's still awesome, but it was just I remember how innovative it felt between you know the band playing and the timing of the band playing with Munson basically playing over the loudspeakers. It's a really wild thing. Um, yeah, that, so the, the piece of music was arranged by Jeff Simmons, who was uh, a red coat in the mid-80s, a uh, very talented arranger composer. And he was an undergrad when he wrote it, which is really mind-blowing <sighs> when you think about how, I know, right? Um, it's, it's a pretty complicated piece of music. Um, he was studying what he referred to as Wagnerian harmony at the time. So pretty complicated stuff. And um, kind of inspired by uh elvis's american trilogy um you know they basically wrote a slow version of glory and and his friend marion english uh was a trumpet player and marion said you have to start this with a trumpet solo um because you know like a typical trumpet player they think the world revolves around them so that's that's kind of a joke it's also kind of not a joke um so Marion got his trumpet solo, which is now turned into you know the 14 notes and marion usually plays that trumpet solo at uh at homecoming but when I think about what pregame used to be, um, I, I entered the band in 1992 and they had just rewritten pregame from the old, old, old version. And, you know, it was a hard time to get people interested in being a part of, you know, a, of an active crowd. And 92 was a good year, but, um, you know, in general, the 90s were were, were really rough. Um, people just didn't, they just didn't cheer. Um, but some of that, I think, also is because pregame had had not really been thought about that carefully. So um, over the course of the 90s, um, especially in starting in 98, uh, we tried to take everything out of that except for things that would get a response from the crowd. Um, so if there, were, there there's not a crowd prompt in it, we want it out. Um, and that sort of culminated in uh, in in the, in the 2000 version of pregame, which basically is nothing but cheers over and over. Um, but we, we were short on time. Um, so a weird thing that probably people don't think about is television networks hate playing the national anthem on their air. They just don't want it on there. 
So we are we need to be done with the national anthem before whoever goes on the air goes on. Um, in fact, last year for the Notre Dame game, the reason the trombone choir played the national anthem rather than the band is because CBS eight o'clock game had uh, had about nine minutes, I think, of material that were going to come after eight o'clock. So the game didn't even kick until eight ten. That was going to put the anthem on their air, and that was not okay. So we had to shift things around in order to make that work. Um, but so we needed we needed to fill more time, quite frankly. And so battle hymns seemed to be the obvious answer because there's a response in it, and people were um, generally into the piece of music anyway. But another ballad. I mean, we already play the national anthem, which is slow-ish. The alma mater is very slow. Um, Krypton is slow. Do we need more slow stuff? So in the process of putting that in there, um, I was writing drill for pregame. This was the summer of 2000 would have been late July, early August. And I was trying to imagine something to do to make battle him more interesting. And I had just been to Ole Miss uh, the year before, maybe the year before that. And this seemed revolutionary at the time, but they were running old clips of football before their game. And that was something we, I don't even know if we had the capability of doing that for that long. Um, But so I thought, man, that's a great idea. Maybe we could start doing that over battle him. I mean, they were just running, you know, clips like um, just for general entertainment. So I thought, all right, we can sort of, you know, review the history of Georgia football in this opening section, a little music nerd moment. The battle hymn is in two different keys. So it starts in the key of D flat and in the middle, it moves to the key of F. Um, and that, that change in key seemed to, it, it required some kind of change in the treatment. So I thought, well, maybe the, the D flat section is the, you know, is the history of Georgia football. And then the F section is the new breed of bulldog. And that's exactly what happens over the course of the tune. Right. So, um, and then, and, and when you watch the video, that's the way they now put the videos together also. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's Herschel, it's Lindsey Scott, it's uh, Blue, it's uh, Appleby to Washington, all those great plays in the first half. And then the second half, it's whoever is, you know, uh, hot right then. And usually if somebody had a big play, like when, uh, when Noshawn leaped over the uh, uh, Central Michigan uh, DB, as I recall, um, that was in the next week, you know, and I think that's one of the cool things uh, about that too. Um, and then wrote, so, okay, video, that makes sense. And then I started thinking maybe Tom Jackson, since he's our announcer, could read something over the top of that. And then I thought, you know, maybe Larry Munson could read something over the top of that. And that's when it kind of started clicking. And a week later we were at WNGC recording that thing. And I'm not sure Larry knew, that it was going to turn into what it was going to turn into. I wasn't, I mean, I didn't even know if it was going to work, but um, the timing on it is a logistical nightmare. Um, It's a little easier than it used to be, but it's always going to be hard because the piece of music doesn't go the same tempo every time. And that's kind of one of the things that's fun about it at the same time too, is that there's a, there's a human element involved. Um, It's in in a digital world. It's a pretty analog thing we're doing there. Well, I think, I think the interesting, the most interesting part about it in me is next year or two years it'll be where what year did it start um that would have been we started in 2000 that started in 2000 okay so yeah. you were 20 20 now 21 years of doing that and it's just still it just because you update the the videos that uh, you know the the you know, current breed of bulldog and that sort of like recency just really resonates and it, it really never gets stale it's amazing 
Um, so, you know, kind of one last thing, and I'm not asking you to divulge anything or anything else. I'm just, you know, I think the question that, that you know we have danced around and it, it kind of, you know, what's going to happen this fall? What? How does how does the band how does the band handle? What if we play a God, what if we're playing in Kentucky in Jan- on January 17th? Um, that's going to be cold. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and for the record, there, there's been no discussion um, that's that's involved us yet. And that's that's not a huge surprise. Um, there, there's a lot more to think about uh, than, than the band. Um, I, I have no idea. I mean, in a lot of ways, a, a good bit of what we do is um, impossible. You know, take 430 people and get them to do the same thing at the same time. And so I'm not really alarmed by the fact that we don't know. I wish I knew more because it would make it easier to plan. But, there, I mean, you know, w- before we did the Rose Bowl, I didn't know three and a half weeks in advance that that's what we were going to do either. And we were able to plan it and make it work. I mean, it wasn't a perfect trip. And that you know, that turn on the on the Colorado Boulevard was not a perfect turn either. But for, for 45 minutes of rehearsal, I'd say it's pretty solid. Um, those are the kinds of things that in a lot of respects we're, we're, we're accustomed to doing. We plan as much as we possibly can um, because there is so much that's unpredictable. Um, I'm guessing we're going to play some portion of a season and, uh, I'm guessing that it's, that it's still going to be mostly concentrated in the fall. I have a real hard time imagining the nightmare behind stretching that too far into the spring semester, especially with basketball already going on. Um, I, I just, I just can't see it, but I mean, we got to have a season somehow. And, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, people will say, well, you know, this is just sports. It's, you know, it's not the same thing. Well, it's not just sports. This is, this is the livelihood of a lot of people and, and it it makes up a lot of budgets at a lot of universities and, um, and those players are depending on this. I mean, for some of them, this is professional development and for others, I mean, this is, this is the key to their education. I mean, you know, you gotta, you gotta get this thing done somehow, but can't make people sick either. So, um, I don't know. I got a feeling we're going to know pretty soon though. And I'm hoping that it's, that it's something close to what we've already got planned. Um, I've also got to figure out, you know, how, how things like this virus affect what bands do. Um, You know, we, we blow spit into instruments. Well, spit carries a virus, you know, and so we have to figure out how to, how to, how to manage that. Um, we're, We're planning to, to talk with colleagues at the university who are experts in things like this, as soon as things calm down just a little bit and make sure that we're taking all the, the precautions we can. I mean, you get one kid in red coat sick and you get all of them sick. Um, so that's, that's, that's something we've got to uh, take care of sooner rather than later. Yeah. And so much of the conversation has revolved around, well, we got to have, and, and it should be uh, necessarily should be about um you know, it's existential for some athletic programs uh, if there's not football season. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't right. say that as uh, as dramatic or like you know Mike Gundy or whatever. Uh, but there is also a very real human component, and you hit on it uh, out beyond just the football players. It's every uh, everything else. I mean, I mean, you hit on it immediately. We blow spit into instruments, and one red coat gets it, all have it, and that's that's probably exactly right. Um, and I think. 
I think your approach in how you're looking at this exactly the right way, but I tend to agree with you. There will be some sort of, unless it's just not possible, there's going to be some sort of athletic uh, football season in, in the fall. Um, it, maybe it gets, does get pushed into winter a little bit, but it, I just, it's not, I can't imagine it. It's just the people that make the decisions can't imagine it. And that I think that'll be dispositive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I feel funny even saying anything like that because I mean, while we're talking, there are people dying. I, I get it. Like that's, it's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And it also doesn't, it also doesn't make the impact that this is having on other areas of life, you know, any, any less strong than it, than it already is. Um, but we'll, we'll figure out a way to, to do it and to, and to do it safely um, and, and hopefully bring some normalcy back to things. Um, I'm a bit of an introvert, um, but, but band sort of uh, um, takes care of that and, and enables me to interact with other people. And um, it's this whole crisis is sort of driving home how important that was to me. And I think to a lot of other people in similar circumstances, um, yeah, we enjoy the music, we enjoy the performing, we enjoy football, et cetera, et cetera. But the people are the thing at the end of the day. I got, I got married, um, what, 10 years after I left the band proper. I was, I was a director at the time. But um, of, of my five groomsmen, four of them I met through Redcoats. And the other one was my brother. Um, and that's a real common story. Um, we, the, the people are the, the reason for the whole thing. Um, so uh, there are a lot of people who are real miserable because they can't be around people they care about. And uh, I'm looking forward to that returning as soon as, as soon as it's safe to do so. I think you speak for all of us when you say that. Brett, thank you so much for taking time to be on the Waiting Since Last Saturday podcast. Go dogs. Go dogs. And thanks so much for listening. And a special thanks to Dr. Balkum and Tony for sharing their conversation with us. You can find Waiting Since Last Saturday wherever you get your podcast from, such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and more. We've also started a YouTube channel, so please go to your YouTube browser and search WSLS Podcast and subscribe while you're there. We'll be doing some live stream shows just like we did last week and anticipate recording some more exciting uh, content. Yeah, we'll go with that. That's what YouTube's all about, content. We're going to do some more of that next week. So have a great weekend. Happy Easter to everyone. And we hope to see you on campus sometime this fall. Stay safe, and as always, Go dogs.